it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 604 for August 10th, 2019. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchatz, but this is not an episode of Programming by Stealth. And uh, we're actually going to talk about something completely different. What's on the table today, Bart? Well, I had this notion that I would like to talk to you about the technology in bicycles um, and specifically, what I realized recently is that it's actually hard work to figure out what bicycle to buy. Hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not straightforward. It used to be. And the tech, the tech's getting, yeah, it used to be how many gears do you want, right? Or road bike, mountain bike. There, done. It, it, was, it was definitely simpler than it is now. Um, so, yeah, so the way I'm thinking about it is, right, let's say that you've decided, I'd like to start cycling more. Maybe because you want to get some energy, some exercise. Maybe because you'd like to avoid some traffic. Maybe because you want to help the planet. Maybe a little bit of each of those. So you're looking for a general purpose bike that's going to let you navigate suburbia. Maybe, you know, spend some time out in the open road. And, you know, probably make the most of some small winding back roads. And maybe, maybe the odd little gravel trail every now and then. Just for oh. a bit of fun. Maybe. Okay. So, so not necessarily uh, death-defying mountain biking. Yeah, nothing extreme, right? So basically okay. what you're, you know, what you're really looking at is a regular mountain bike or a so-called city bike. Um, but that sounds, you know, there was a time when that was your decision pretty much done. You went, I want a mountain bike. You went to the bike shop and you went, I'd like a mountain bike and I have 500 euro. And he went, that one. <laughs> That's not <laughs> true anymore. Right, right, right. So what basically what I thought is, why don't we go through the questions you should ask yourself so that you'll know what you care about. And then when you're presented with this sea of information, you can actually figure out how do I compare these models. Okay. So for some background, I have been a keen cyclist for pretty much as long as I can remember. One of literally the first thing I purchased when I had any money of my own, which was when I did my first Holy Communion at age six, is a bicycle. That was literally the first thing I bought with my own money. It wasn't a mountain bike because I was too small. But every yeah. other bike I bought was a mountain bike after that. Um, so, I, actually, that's not quite true. I have owned a few city bikes. So, for me, I'm a mountain bike, city bike person. I have never owned a racing bike. I have never owned an extreme off-road bike. I have always gone for general purpose, jack-of-all-trades, mountain bike-ish bicycles. And are you going to get into what the difference is between those? Yep. Okay. So I do about 50k a day. Uh, some of that is me commuting, commuting in and out to work. And some of that is me getting some mental or and or and some exercise before or after work. Um, I'm a two bike person. I have an old city bike for getting myself in and out of work. And I have a relatively modern mountain bike for everything else. 2017. I can't call that new anymore. It's two and a bit years old now. Um, if you're curious, it's a big seven five hundred from the German manufacturer Merida. Lovely bike, to be honest. I remember when you when you bought that bike, you were sad at first that someone stole your bike, and then you realized you got to buy a new bike, and you were happier. Yeah. So uh, the, the bike that was stolen, I did. I liked it a lot, but it was one spec model down from the bike I replaced it with, mm. and it just dawned on me that I had I had bought the wrong bike a year before. Now, oh. I would rather not have had to lose the entire price of the wrong bike, but mm -hmm. hey. Um, yeah, so I'd gone you for a big 7, I think it was a big 7, 400, and I should have gone for the 500, just the higher spec model. 
So then I did the second time around, and it's a much nicer bike. So you've already got your old city bike for commuting. That's just like, that's your truck? That's your, that is, your, yeah. your get-her-done get bike? It is, and it also looks like it's worthless, which it actually is, ah. to be honest. <laughs> and, and, and that's why it gets to live in the city? Yeah, and I still lock it. Um but it's much less likely, you know, your lock doesn't have to be strong enough to beat the bike thief. Your bike just has to be not the most tempting one in the bike shed. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, you don't have to run faster than the bear kind of thing. Um, so what I'm hoping to get out of today's conversation. Oh, yeah, actually, sorry. One more thing to say. I have never owned a racing bike. I have never owned a downhill mountain bike. I've never owned any sort of very fancy pants bike. So if you're looking to buy yourself the best road bike out, you know, the best racing bike out there, I know we have other Nocilla castaways who are into that kind of thing. I am the wrong person to talk to about that. I am the guy (laughs) to talk to about general purpose bikes. So that's what we'll be doing today. So you're in the market for a new bike. I I might be. Or no. So are you going to talk about why? Because you already have a relatively new bike and your old city bike. Yeah, we need a third. Basically, the, the the we need one of my my city bike is at the end of its life. Oh, um, okay. And at the moment, we're trying to resurrect it, but it turns out that it's so old that uh, the the bike shop can't find parts that fit. Oh wow! Okay. So, so I'm giving him one. Basically, he said, "Look, I have a few more people to try, a few more scrapyards to try." Mm. <laughs> but if he fails, I'm going to have to buy a new bike. So that's so, sort of got me thinking about it. Yeah, so would you be looking to replace that bike with a a new road bike and then your current road bike becomes the city bike? No, no, I would replace it with a city. I would replace it with a a city bike. um, Okay. Because, so, we'll talk about the different frame types in a moment, but a city bike is a physically different thing to a mountain Mm. bike. Okay. They're they're, they're cousins. Like, the family resemblance is very strong, but they're not the same. So anyway, my my sort of thinking here, right? So uh, as I was thinking about this, the first thing that struck me is that the actual basic shape of a bike hasn't changed in a bloody century. A diamond-shaped frame with three horizontal axles, front, rear, and center, and a vertical axle for the steering. Like, arguably, the bike hasn't changed. And yet... It is so much harder to get from I want a bike to hitting the buy button these days than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. Because there's so many other variables. So many variables. And the thing is, unless you're planning on spending an exorbitant amount of money, you can decide everything you want. So you can decide the answer to every question in this segment today. You're not going to get what you want in every category because unless you go bespoke and spend the fortune, you're going to have to choose. So basically, you're going to find a short list of three or four bikes, and you're going to have the catalogs with the spec sheets in front of you, and you're going to have to make trade-offs. You're only going to get five out of the six things you want, or four out of the six, or whatever. And so not only do you need to know what you want, you also need to know how much you want each of the things you want. Because you're so you going need to, to do have a to QFD about it, right? With the the, yeah. the how important it is and and uh, how each one meets those criteria. Yeah, so I was thinking sort of more Moscow, sort of more must have, could have, should have. But yeah, you basically need to know: is it more important that I have hydraulic disc brakes versus twenty nine gears? Actually, that should be twenty seven. Twenty nine is impossible. It's a prime number. You can't have a prime number. Um, fix that. You said bespoke uh, recently. What do you mean by bespoke? You could 
go to a bike shop and say, I would like you to order me this frame, these wheels, these gears, and you could literally build up your own bike. Okay, so that means uh, like made to order? Made to order. order. You would at that point go to your bank and say, I'd like my credit limit raised. (laughs) That house payment for next month, yeah, that won't be coming. I hope you don't mind. Here's my left kidney. Yeah. I I mean, you absolutely could, but realistically... That's not what's going to happen. Realistically, what's going to happen is you're going to get, you're going to find yourself in the situation I found myself in three years ago, again two years ago, and I'm again in now, where you have, you've narrowed it down to say three or four big picture choices, and now you're left going, okay, compromise time. Which of these compromises am I making? Okay. So basically, what I hope we get out of it is a way to think about what you want and how much you want what you want. So I've broken it into questions. And let's start with the biggest question of all. Big picture-wise, what shape of frame do you want? So I have broken that into three broad options. So let's start with the easy one everyone can just picture in their mind. A traditional, simple mountain bike. Big frame, all traditional angles, very traditional shape. Big advantages here. Lots of mounting points for your various accessories like drinks, cages, mudguards, carriers, panniers, you name it. There's little bit attachment points all over those standard mountain bikes. What's a pannier? P-A-N-N-I-E-R? Uh, a pannier is, you know those bags that hang off to the side? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're pannier bags. I think historically okay. they would have been on the back of donkeys, one left, one right. Right, okay, okay. Learning new words, right and left here. Yeah, it's it's a French word, so it's very posh sounding, but they're basically bags that hang out the side. Okay. Um, the other thing is accessories will generally fit a traditional shaped mountain bike. So one of the things I used to love was instead of having a saddle bag under my saddle, I used to have this triangular shaped bag that fit in sort of under your crotch, if you can imagine, but between the upright bar and the, and the crossbar, it was this little triangular bag that would fit in there. Mm. And it was a really oh, handy okay. place to keep stuff. Yeah, my new bike, I can't do that because my new bike is not a traditional shape. It doesn't have the normal angles. So if you go traditional, all the accessories will just work because you have traditional shape of things. Okay. The thing is, if you plan on being a little bit more adventurous and going on trails, you do not want a traditional shape mountain bike because you don't have enough clearance to stand over the crossbar with your front wheel a foot off the ground. Wait. And if you're male, this it's is called really a mountain neat. bike, but you can't go on trails with it. You can't go on anything beyond a simple, be anything vaguely rough, right? Gravel, fine, but as soon as you're starting to go over tree trunks and stuff, as soon as basically your front wheel ends up more than a foot higher than the, the, the than level surface, the, you, you've gone too far here. Um, so the clearance between the ground and the crossbar is is small. It's, well, okay, so what matters is, right, so imagine there's some sort of obstacle, a rock, a tree branch, and you, you're trying to get over it, and you you mess up. You either fall over, or you put both feet on the ground. Now, okay. if your crossbar is close to, if your crossbar is where it is on a normal mountain bike, at this point in time, you will never have children. Because your front wheel is now raised up, your bar doesn't have near enough clearance, and you have just given yourself a very painful injury. Okay. Which is why if you're going on trails, you need a more opinionated mountain bike, as I call it. The, the crossbar... Went on a girly mountain bike. 
Uh, we'll talk about those in a moment. Because those are actually traditional mountain bikes. Just They're very traditional. To make a little bit of, of a point on it there. They're very um, traditional. Uh, but I okay. do make it. We'll come back to those in a moment because they're a very special case. Not the girls, they aren't. Uh, they should be. <laughs> okay. Okay, so traditional mountain bike is the first easy decision, really, to be honest, because, like I say, unless you're planning on getting adventurous, it just works, and all the accessories will fit, and you can mount anything you want to it, it'll just work, you're not going to have any sort of funny problems, because you basically went for the most traditional kind of mountain bike out there. Simple. Uh, Imagine a traditional mountain bike, and you put it on a diet. You just use slimmer tubes... Lighter weight everything, finer everything, just make it more petite. Welcome to the city bike. Hmm, okay. So a city bike is a slimmed down traditional mountain bike. It's going to be a lot lighter. It's going to be, you know, it it really is for weaving in and out of traffic and for making suburbia, you know, you rule suburbia on a city bike. But absolutely forget about any sort of trails here. Right, you know, like the, the the basic mountain bike will do some simple trails, but with the city bike, you're you're staying in the city. It's in the name, right? So, but I, I mean, I, they have a lot of advantages because they're they're much lighter, much slimmer. The disadvantage, of course, would be that because everything is slimmer. If you think, well, I, I want to get adventurous, and you go to stick a giant big mountain bike tire on it, it physically won't fit because the forks will be too close together. Okay, right. So a city bike really is for the city. But if you're in the if you know you're going to live in the city, it's a really good design. Like they literally took a mountain bike and went, How do we make this perfect for cities? and then called it a city bike. So if that so describes this is, this what is you interesting, want. Because there there's a we talk about road bikes, which is not mm. in this list, but a road bike is very different. I'm I'm looking at pictures to see what you're talking about, a city bike. Because hmm. we have road bikes are more like the the old ten speeds with the the handlebars that wrap down and you lean way down and they have very very thin tires. Yeah, I'd call really that a racer. Bikes. Is what we call that they're, here. They're not. They're not though. They're. they're I mean, they're they're say a low end version of something like that. But that some people wear uh, ride those. But I haven't ever heard of a city bike, and I'm looking at pictures of them, and I'm not sure I've seen anything like this. They're extremely popular in Europe. Maybe they're not popular in the States. Well, or maybe we just call them something else. Or you have yeah. a different vocabulary. That is entirely right, possible. Right, right. But I don't know your vocabulary, so... Also... <laughs> Dear Nocilla Castaways, please, yeah. please log into the wonderful Slack channel and let us know. And we can follow up next time. Yeah. I'm looking at all the different name, naming conventions and I, I, that's interesting. It very well could be that I just haven't paid attention lately. So uh, I guess I see what you're talking about. They're like mountain bikes, but but thinner. They're in shape. They're but their their tires are not very not very thick. Yeah, exactly. So they're sort of a halfway like if you imagine what you what you call your your, your sort of your your traditional road bike, but you take off the curly down handlebars and throw them away, and you put on mountain bike handlebars, you're getting close. How about the uh, the seat? The seat would be more mountain bikey. Yeah, it would be a mountain bikey comfy seat rather than a you must wear short, you must wear padded shorts because the seat has no padding sort of. Right. Okay. Okay, now I think I've I'm I'm caught up to you. Excellent. Actually for you the city bike would be perfect for going along those lovely beaches in your neck of the woods. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that is what I own. Might. Well, <laughs> is your handlebar me. straight? Yes, yes, then it probably is a city bike. But it's it's got a pretty big, thick, grippy wheel. But I wouldn't take it on uh, on. Uh, so it it isn't thin like a like a road bike. Well, then it's either a traditional mountain not... bike or a city bike or on that spectrum. I mean, where do you draw the line? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they really are very very similar. All right. So the last option I'm considering here is what I call the opinionated mountain bike. So these, we're not talking about like, a, 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 a there are special mountain bikes for stuff like downhill racing and they're really weird shapes with like front and rear suspension and all sorts of like, I'm not talking about that kind of an extreme sort of bike. I'm talking about you take the traditional mountain bike frame and you change the angles around a bit so that the crossbar is much, much lower down and is sloping backwards at a steep angle so that you can lift the front wheel well up off the ground without castrating yourself. Uh, and that okay. means that it is... It looks a lot like a girl's bike to me. Uh, it's, it is... Maybe not quite as far down. No, and it's different in a really key engineering structural sort of way, which is why I'm so against mm-hmm. ladies' bikes, because their engineering is awful. Um. But actually, it would achieve many of the same things as a ladies' bike, actually. Right, right. Um, so the opinionated mountain bike, as I call it, is what I have ended up buying. So I, so basically, you end up with a small frame with very steep angles, which means that you... It is important that you get the right size frame, but we'll come to that later. Uh, but it means that you have lots of clearance. You can go on the rougher trails, uh, but all the angles are off. So you're not sticking in those, you know, under, you know, the, those that little triangular bag I used to love. That's that's on my city bike now because it's no good to me on my mountain bike. Um, I didn't throw it away because I still have my city bike, but you know what I mean. Um, you're going to have way fewer mounting points for things. You can forget about, you know, mudguards. I can't even put mudguards on my bike, let alone panniers. Um, and, you know, I need to be really careful buying accessories because they may well not fit. But it's gorgeous, mm. and it's a real pleasure to the cycle because <laughs> the angles are really well engineered, um, and I can go on fun trails when I want to. You know, so for me, it was the right choice. But if I, if I didn't go on, if I didn't like throwing myself down mountains with forests on them, this would be the wrong bike. But I do like that. I don't do it often, but I, I have such fun when I do. So, <laughs> okay. So having that as an option, yeah. So. Let's let let's deal with the ladies' bike. So, the diamond frame shape works really well because of how it distributes forces through the frame. So the key point is that the crossbar meets the bar going down to the back wheel at the point where the saddle post comes in together. So those three really vital structural points meet at a point, and so all the forces can be distributed really efficiently throughout the frame. It's really rigid. It's sort of like a truss structure. It's very strong. Right. I I just had to bring up a bike to see why you were calling it a diamond. So we've got the horizontal crossbar, then a bar that goes diagonally down to the back wheel, then it comes across and it intersects now with with the post for the seat and the pedals. And then comes then comes back up to the handlebars. Yeah. So basically, you have two parallel lines yeah. between the back wheel and the pedals, and between the saddle and the handlebars. And then you have two other parallel lines from the saddle to the back wheel, and from the handlebars to the to the pedals. 
Okay. And, but, and the, the bikes that have the angle coming down more like your 15 inch Merida or your 15 mm-hmm. Merida that, uh, that, that comes down, but it's still forming. A it's diamond. still forming. It's a squished diamond with really odd angles, but it, everything is still meeting so that the forces are properly distributed. A lady's bike, mm-hmm. you take that point where the three should meet and you clunk one of them off and then you attach it to the middle of the upright. So now where are the forces okay. going? Well, they're not... Anywhere they want. Anywhere they want. <laughs> what you end up with is a floppy frame. It's like a cabriolet hmm. is always a floppy chassis. I don't know what a cabriolet is. Uh, a convertible. Is. Ah, They end okay. up having to put all sorts of structures in place so they weigh a they weigh a lot more a convertible car and they mm, perform way okay. worse because even with all the extra supports you have a floppy chassis and if you want a tight performing car you want a good solid chassis like a good chassis makes all the difference for performance well a mountain bike any bike is no different having something so badly designed structurally does not give you a good bike and the only reason... Like you say, you have to do other things to make it heavier, to, to make it have the structural integrity it, it needs. It, exactly. It has to be, because otherwise, by attaching to the middle of that upright with nothing behind it to take the force the other way, that has to be a much heavier upright as well. It's just a terrible yeah, engineering design. And the only reason it was designed uh-huh. that way is because Victorian men couldn't envisage... Yeah, <laughs> couldn't envisage Victorian women not wearing giant big dresses. Now, in reality, how many of our female Nasilla Castaway listeners who plan on exercising on their bicycle are planning on wearing a dress? <laughs> Probably not too many. Probably of us. not too many. So I would say, unless you are a genuine lover of the dress wearing while the cycling, do not buy a lady's bike. <laughs> they are fundamentally compromised because of physics. Just a bad design. Right. Okay, so that's sort of your first decision. I know I want a traditional bike, a city bike, or whatever we call those in America, or as I'm naming it, an opinionated mountain bike. Basically, a more extreme mountain bike design. So you've picked one of those. Great. Decision one, out of the way. If you imagine your giant big stack of catalogues, you've now thrown, I would say, 90% of the options away. Great. You probably still have hundreds of options left. but You've thrown a lot away, right? Uh, just to say, actually, if you're looking for some jargon, all of the... Actually, no, I, uh, sorry, I have that as a question two. <laughs> Jumping ahead of myself here. Okay, so the next question is suspension. And these days, this is a really easy question, right? It used to be that suspension cost a fortune and whether or not you wanted it was like, a, can I really afford it? Wait a minute, what do you, what do you mean by suspension? I mean, um, so, okay, so there, it is normal these days to have... Shock absorbers on the front ah. uh, forks. So between the handlebars right. okay. and the front axle to have a shock absorber. Two of them, now, in fact. Now, in my experience, like uh, city bikes, or what I would call a road bike, does not have, uh, does not usually have uh, City bike would. To. They would just be nice and slender. Not city as obvious would. as the mountain bike ones, which tend to look quite... And have a long travel. Yeah. yeah. So the city bike ones might only have yeah, an inch of travel and be very slender, do. whereas a mountain bike one, like my mountain bike, has three inches of travel, I think, on its suspension forks. Okay. So I don't, I don't think road bikes have them at all. No, they don't, because they technically are actually somewhat inefficient, right? Because now rear suspension is really inefficient, right? So you're a physicist, so you know, not, not a physicist, you're an engineer. The I'm other not one, a I'm a physicist, an you're an engineer. Um, <laughs> 
I knew one yeah, of us one was. of us was. So you you and I both know that a suspension fork is a damper. Its job in life is to take energy and make it go away. Now, obviously, it can't actually go away. Mm-hmm. It converts to heat. Now, a rear, a rear suspension is between your backside and the back wheel. So every time you pedal, you're deforming it. Every That energy you're putting into your pedals, oh, and you're okay. wasting it by ah, bouncing the back of your gotcha. bike up and down. So that's really gotcha. inefficient. The only bike you want with rear suspension is a bike designed for something called downhill racing. And in downhill racing, applying force is not your problem. Gravity has that entirely taken care of, and you're just <laughs> hanging on for dear life. So unless you're right. going downhill racing, you do not want rear suspension. Now, front suspension is way less inefficient because you're not applying force between the top and the bottom of that suspension fork. But it's not that it's never going to move at all. So in theory, you are definitely going to lose a tiny amount of energy that way, which is why on a racing bike, you will not have front suspension because on a racing bike, you're looking at tenths of a second. And in that case, yes, it's less efficient. However, here in the real world, for our purposes... What we would like to do is avoid hurting our wrists. And if you're on a rough road surface and you have a solid fork, your wrists are your shock absorber. Uh. And that has two downsides. One, you can actually hurt yourself if you're on a gravel track or whatever. And two, you can't control the bike if you can't hold on because your handlebars are vibrating so much. You're actually It's actually dangerous. Okay. You're not in control of your bike if you don't have a good grip on the handlebars. So you actually need that suspension fork on a gravelly rough surface. So I would say... Makes sense. For for our purposes, you want what is known in the lingo as a hardtail, i.e. front suspension, Hmm. no rear. Why do they call it hard? Oh, because your Your tail tail is is not on... Not on tracks. So you'll see them in mountain bike, you know, in mountain bike catalogs as hardtails. So that, that's sort of where you want to hang around. And the city bikes will, they're never going to offer you rear suspension. Uh, but the, the opinionated mountain bikes might, if you're not careful, you don't want it. Unless all you plan to do is throw yourself down mountains. But our whole point here is that okay. this is a general purpose bike and rear suspension is not general purpose. So basically, it's an easy decision after all. You do want front suspension, you don't want rear suspension. And then you have a few good-to-haves. So... A nice expensive fork will actually have like an adjuster dial on it somewhere where you can change the hardness of the suspension. And in theory, these are wonderful because you might say to yourself, well, today I'm cycling a nice road, so I'll dial it to five. And tomorrow I'm going on a trail, so I'll dial it to one. I have owned bikes with adjustable suspension. I have set them on three, which is the middle value, and they have stayed on three for the entire five, six years I've owned that bike. (laughs) Is it because it doesn't really make that big of a difference? Or you forget yep. about it? Or... Both. It makes... Okay, so for the first week or so, you fiddle yep. with it, maybe? Yes, and then you okay. go, I'm just fiddling. <laughs> I'm not achieving anything, I'm just fiddling. So you put it to three and you get on with your life. What? So if the bike has it, that's not a bad thing, but don't spend that. That would be my advice. I have, I have found it to be, like, if the difference is, if that's what's going to save you $100, take the $100, go buy lots of ice cream. What is useful, though, is a binary lockout button. Or, well, usually it's a, it's, a, it's a dial that you turn from not locked to locked. And that basically means that you can turn off the suspension fork if you want to. 
So if you're actually oh. just going to be out on the road on a smooth surface, well, why not? I know it's only a tiny amount of loss, but hey, why not take it back? So just lock the, lock the forks out. And the other thing oh, is... Interesting. And you found you do, you do use I that? I do, but not, not for that reason. Now, we all know it's not safe to carry things in your handlebars. I am saying that you should never do that. <laughs> However, I can see where you're going. what I say and what I do do not always agree with each other. There are times when I end up having to carry some shopping. I forgot to pick up milk. And you do not want heavy shopping on a front fork because that will just depress the fork. So just lock them out and then off you go. So I, that is the only time I use my lockout button is when I'm doing something I know I shouldn't do. And I, I, you know, I'm telling you not to do it, but what would, why would it hurt? Because it would be going up and down and no, up it would down go down and stay down. The heavy stuff? right. So what's wrong with it being down and stay down? Isn't that the same as lock? Uh, no, locked locks it up, and it means that you're not putting your very expensive like the, the suspension fork on a mountain bike could be worth two three hundred dollars on its own. It's not designed to carry weight there. It's designed for the weight to be oh, behind okay. it. Okay. And if you have it locked down, then that's putting pressure where it shouldn't be, but locked up is Yeah, okay. so basically the lock switch locks them safe. Mm. Just having weight on your handlebars okay. that it was never designed to deal with, it's it's not good for them. And also, you're at the wrong okay. angle then, right? Because you're... You're depressed, like you're you're cycling, pointing a little bit more at the ground than you should be. And if it's a fork with a three-inch travel and you've bought a lot of shopping, maybe those three inches are too much. And what's the point of bicycling dis- depressed? Precisely. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So just click, done. Now, question three didn't used to be a question at all. There used to not be a question three, but today you have a decision to make that you may not realise you have to make. You have to choose what size of wheel you want. Seriously. Hmm. So so a given bike can have different size yes. wheels? So in the case of Merida, they have a very simple naming convention. So my bike is a big 7500. There is a big 6500 and a big 9500. They are exactly the same bike, except one of them has a 26-inch wheel, one of them has a 29-inch wheel, and one of them has something we'll talk about in a moment. So for most of my life, this was a non-decision for one really good reason. Every mountain bike had 26-inch wheels. That was it. They were mountain bike okay. wheels. We actually called them mountain bike wheels, 26-inch wheels. About a decade ago, into the general mountain bike category, marched a new thing to juice sales. 29-inch wheels. Now, 29 inches is a big jump from 26 So why did 29-inch wheels wade into view? Well, there are some advantages to bigger wheels. So larger wheels can actually roll over obstacles more easily because the angle of attack is more shallow, right? If you have a bigger wheel, the angle from the ground up on that bigger, uh, on that larger diameter is less. Right, right. right. So that angle of attack actually gives you a smoother ride. You also get better grip because the contact patch is bigger because the tyre isn't kicking up as fast. So they are grippier. Uh, oh, okay. Well, more of the wheel would be touching, the tyre the would be touching the ground at the same yes, time. Yes, exactly. So they call that the contact patch. So you have a bigger contact patch because the, the angle is less. Would that be more friction, though? So it'd be, you'd have to put more energy into driving, riding the same There would distance. be a little bit more drag, yes. But it is better grip. So in a mountain bike, you're often more in favor of grip. 
because we have those big chunky tires. Uh, the other advantage is that inertia is your friend, right? If you if you see an industrial flywheel, it's never small. It's big. So the 29-inch wheels will actually carry speed a little bit better because they're bigger, so they have a little bit more of a moment of inertia. Uh, and you also, because the wheels are bigger, you have to move everything else further apart, so you end up with a longer wheelbase. And a longer wheelbase is more stable when you're taking corners and stuff. So... In theory, anyway, you end up with a bike that's more stable, better able to handle rough surfaces, and has better grip. And it carries its inertia better. So this all sounds great. But of course, this is planet Earth. In the real world, there are trade-offs. So larger wheels mean you have to have bigger frames, which means the bike must be heavier. A 29-inch bike could be 15 20% heavier if it was... Oh, wow. Yeah, just because you need to put everything further apart to make room for those bigger wheels. So forget that extra drag. You just had a 15%. Yeah, exactly. So the more drag of a different kind. Yeah. Uh, larger frames are also, by definition, less rigid. And that actually reduces the handling. So in theory, they should, you know, longer wheelbase, more stable, but actually longer, longer everything, more floppy. More floppy bad. Also, if you're tall... <laughs> A 29-inch bike is probably fine. If you're a little bit on the shorter side, like, say, 5 foot 8 inches, like someone on this call might be, you're going to find it really hard to find a comfortable 29-inch wheeled bike for you. They're just big, and I'm not. So, a few years ago, someone decided that actually 26 is too small, and 29 is too big for most people. Why don't we split the difference and make a 27.5-inch wheel? <laughs> and the middle one was just Well, right. for me, absolutely. So my big 7 500 is the 27.5-inch version of the big 500. Oh, okay. So my commuting bike is old. Therefore, in its day, they were 26-inch <laughs> wheels or bust. So my city bike has 26-inch wheels and my new, my old mountain bike that was stolen had 26-inch wheels because I was too nervous about change to change then. At that stage, to be honest, the 27s were, weren't really there yet and the 29s were like a big change and I was like, I'm not making a big change. But on my newest bike, two years ago, I went with the 27.5 and I love it. It is, it is the perfect compromise. It is the porridge that's just right if we're going to you know, continue that analogy. So for someone, you know, sort of the no, five foot eight, five foot tall, ten, that might be. But a six foot tall person might be just perfectly fine with twenty. They might inch. be, but again, you're going to have all the other compromises for that you come with the twenty nine inch too. So actually, to be honest, I think that twenty seven point five is just a sweet spot. I think it's a really good engineering. Like it sort of gets you lots of the advantages of the bigger wheel. You have the smaller angle of attack and stuff, but without going too far and without making the bike too much heavier, and without making the frame too much floppier. I think it's just better. I think it, I think it basically... Can I ask you a dumb question? Yeah. Why is it called 27.5 inches and not 70 centimeters? Because bikes are British. Or rather, our nomenclature for bikes is deeply British, and like everything British, it's an imperial. Everything on bikes is an imperial. Mm. I know my tires by their width in inches. I know my frame by its height in inches. I know my wheels by its diameter in inches. 
Interesting. I always assumed ours was in inches because we use inches. Well, that's also because the British may have had something to do with the birth of your nation. Right, right. But uh, where, where, where were bicycles invented? I believe they were popularized by, I think, Rally or a British company. And they certainly popularized. They're sort of like the Model T of uh, of bicycles. So... I know the Wright brothers were big on it. Ah, the Wright brothers were German. big on bicycles, which is why their airplane had like chain chain drive and stuff. Right, a German named Baron Karl von Dreis. Ha ha, a German, a civil servant to the Grand Duke of Baden in Germany. He invented cool. it. Bicycles are definitely a big thing in Victorian England. Uh, actually, they were a big thing in yeah. women's liberation because you know they, they, they gave great freedom. Even if they had to have the stupid, badly engineered frames. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so we've got a we've got an opinionated mountain bike. We're going to go twenty seven and a half inch wheels, even if we're six feet tall. And we're getting a hardtail and and a hardtail with tail. a lockout if we if, if we can afford it. Right. So the next thing to okay. do is we need to shove some tires onto this thing, and you can change those aftermarket without breaking the bank. Actually, so in this case, maybe it doesn't matter what the bike comes with because you can change your mind later. Uh, but tires make a huge difference because they are the bit where your bicycle comes in contact with planet Earth. Uh, they should be the only point at which your bicycle comes into planet Earth, into contact with planet Earth, unless <laughs> things are going wrong. And the wrong tire can literally kill you. Ooh. Right? Like in a car, if you're driving around on bald tires or the wrong tires... You don't have any grip. If it's a wet day and you have slick tires on, you're going aquaplaning. Deeply unpleasant in a car. Deeply, 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 deeply unpleasant on a bicycle. Hmm. You only have two wheels. So (laughs) there is, to say there's a spectrum of tires is putting it so mildly is not even funny. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe the two extremes and then bear in mind that an Every point you could think of, there's a, there's like a spectrum here. So on the one extreme, okay. we have the off-road tire. The main characteristics of an off-road tire are it is wide. They It is quite normal to see an, an, out, an off-road tire up to 2.125 inches wide. Two and an eighth inches wide. Compared to your little road bike, that is an astonishing difference. They tend to have a flat profile, so they have a really wide contact patch. So they're really sticking to the ground, which, as you've already mentioned, drag, 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 drag. But they have a really wide footprint because they're very flat in their profile. They tend to be very nubbly, with lots of weird-shaped, rubbery, chunky bits sticking out in all sorts of directions. (laughs) Like, the patterns... You could probably write a book on all the different patterns that exist. And they all have pros and cons. And the other thing is a mount, an off-road tyre tends to be made of a very soft compound. I, I hesitate to use the word rubber because I don't think any of it is actual rubber anymore. These days, but it tends to be very soft so it can deform around gravel and stuff. That also means they tend to wear out very easily. And if you're on a tarmacadam road and you do a childlike skid, you may leave half the tyre behind you. So that's one extreme. So the great advantages you get from that extreme are... You don't sink into soft surfaces. You have this really wide tyre that's very flat in profile. So like a tractor tyre, it sits on the mud instead of sinking into the mud like a road racer would. 
Uh, you can also find grip on soft surfaces like gravel and mud or even sand because of those nubbly bits and that massive wide footprint. Uh, you generally speaking will find it pretty much impossible to aquaplane on a nubbly tyre because there's no way that there can be enough water that it can build a film all the way across the entire tyre. Like there are so many pits and troughs, the water can get away. Um, but you also have some serious disadvantages. Like these things drag like you wouldn't believe. Massive contact patch, right. soft rubber, they want to stick to the thermic atom. Uh, those nubbly bits, believe it or not, can make like a stupendous amount of noise. It can actually sound like someone going if you try to cycle <laughs> a big nubbly off-road tire on a Tarmacadam road. Like they can be staggeringly loud. You probably can't physically shove one into your bike unless you have an opinionated mountain bike with good wide forks. And because they're made of a soft material, you'll probably leave half of it behind if you do a skid. The other extreme, then, is the road tyre. Narrow. The profile is rounded, so it just the teeniest of tips is in contact with the road, so a tiny little contact patch. They tend to be smooth, not no grips, but, you know, just a few grips, enough to let the water escape so that you hopefully don't aquaplane most of the time. <laughs> and they tend to be made from very hard material, so they're much less soft and grippy. So the obvious... So this this non aquaplaning that would be really handy here where it hasn't rained since the early nineteen eighties. Yeah, basically you you can run on like fully slick tires probably because if it's raining you're not going out on your bike because you're panicking. But perhaps, but perhaps not what you would be going for. Absolutely, positively not what I would be going for because I'd be dead. <laughs> they have so much less drag. They are so much quieter and they're way harder wearing. And they also come with some disadvantages, like, you know, if you try to cycle them on some sand or some mud, you just sink. Uh, and you basically don't get any grip on, like, mud and grass and stuff. And depending on what frame size you have, you actually may find your choices limited. But of course these exist on a spectrum. So what I love is the new fashion for so-called hybrid tyres. So I have been riding on hybrids for years now, and I adore them. So I have a really wide tire on my opinionated mountain bike. I have a 20, uh, 27.5 by 2.125 inch tire. So it is a full two oh, and eighth inches you wide. You went for the full width. Oh, really? But it's not flat in profile. It's, got a, it's a wide oh. tire with a circular profile, and it has two grip okay. patterns. The central one at the top of the semicircle is a road-style relatively smooth just some slits along it to keep the water out or to let the water escape but it's mostly slick and it's only about you know three or four millimeters wide at the tip of that rounded profile so when i am on the road what's in contact with the road is effectively a road tire but of course there's another Mm. like two inches of tire you know half of it left half of it right which is curved away from the road surface and is nubbly So as soon as I hit a soft surface, I sink a little bit, you know, a few millimetres sink, and all of a sudden, I have a mountain bike tyre. Oh, okay. So I get to to go on the road without horrible drag and horrible noise, but if I go have some fun off-road, I still have more than enough grip to get on with things, especially because it's such a wide tyre. And because I have an opinionated mountain bike, the frame is plenty big enough to accommodate a wide tyre. So I adore hybrid tires because it's one of those rare cases where you get to, to, to eat your cake and have it. 
<laughs> That's actually how that used to be said. And it makes so much more sense that way. Eat your way. cake and have it. You can eat your cake. You want to eat your cake and have it. That makes sense. Have your cake and eat it. That makes no sense. Why else would I have a cake? <laughs> anyway. You sound like you haven't finished the saying, though. That is true. Yeah, I think it's... Eat your cake and have it, too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it sounds better the wrong way around. But logic. Logic. So I'm, I'm going to okay. back you up on the very, very beginning. We also use the terminology of a, uh, a hybrid bike. Yes. Which is halfway between a mountain bike and a, and a road yeah, bike. Yeah, so, I mean, everything exists on a spectrum, right? Uh, but a hybrid tire, you'll yeah. find the hybrid tire to fit any bike, right? Because what makes them hybrid is the fact that they have this, okay. they're as wide as they'll fit in your bike, but they're round in profile instead of flat with the two grip patterns on the one tire. So the road-style grip pattern in the middle and the mountain bike-style grip paddle pattern on the sides. And so you can get... I really want to go get my bike out of the shed and look at it, because I've never paid this much attention to the to the tire on my there bike. Yeah, but do, actually, because they're really popular, the hybrid style, because they're just such a good design. It's just really nice engineering. So my advice is, if in doubt, get the widest hybrid tire that fits between your frame. Hmm. Next question is really important. Brakes. Right. If your tire is the one bit you that's in contact with the road, your brakes are the bit that actually make your tire work. Right. You apply the brakes and at that point your tire has to make the force you're applying actually work. Your brakes are unbelievably important. And there was a time when this was a really complicated question because there were lots of different styles of brake and lots of different types of pad. Lots of decisions to make here. I'm happy to say that this is one of the rare cases where the decision has gone away. You want hydraulic disc brakes. Oh. End of discussion. Now. So what do they, they used to be? So Okay, so you used to have something like called caliper brakes was one design, where basically there was uh, a mounting pin straight above the middle of the wheel, and there was a caliper going down each side with a brake block, and the cable came off the edge. And when you pull the edges together, the, mm-hmm. the pads clamped onto the wheels. They're called Squeeze caliper brakes. Yeah. And so the cable... That's what I think I have. You probably have cantilever brakes, which means you have two mounting okay. pins, one on the left fork, one on the right fork. And the pads are on one end of the cantilever and the cable attaches up the opposite side of the pin from the brake pads and so you have a law of the lever giving way more force that's probably what you have okay they're cool they're okay so you have calipers and cantilevers and then there were a few different designs of the cantilevers um but nowadays it's disc brakes all the way and Mm. there's another word in that sentence hydraulic disc brakes so you can have what I call pretend disc brakes. They look like disc brakes because they have a disc, but they're cable operated and they're awful. They're like you'd be better off with an old fashioned style caliper brakes, not caliper brakes. You don't want caliper brakes. Um, cantilever brake than with a cable operated disc brake. Like in order f- to be able to provide enough force on a little disc, you need the power of hydraulics. You need the fact that. You have pistons of different sizes, so there's a force multiplier between what you apply on the handlebars. You apply a small force on the handlebars, which the hydraulics translate into a big force on the disc. 
on the. So I'm, I'm trying to look at pictures of these while we're talking, and I still can't. I can't tell how they were. I've never seen anything like this before. I didn't know this existed. So this is definitely not what I. It's have. not what you have. And up until about two or three years ago, these would have cost a fortune. And now, pretty much every bike okay. has hydraulic disc brakes. It's great because I have. N- it looks like they're. Sorry. In all my life of cycling, I have never had such a pleasant experience as the first time using hydraulic disc brakes. It's like it was an earth-shatteringly brilliant moment. So, I've never enjoyed braking on a bicycle. Right, because I've always felt like it wasn't like I was having to squeeze yes, really hard. Yes. All right, there were two problems you used to have. Three problems. Among the many problems. Um so the first problem was you used to have to put too much force on. It was hard work to brake. Because it wasn't enough of a force multiplier between your control on the handlebars and the actual squeezing of the thing making you slow down. With the hydraulics, that is just not an issue. You apply a small force, which is translated into a big force. The second problem I often had was that there was very little difference between nothing, 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 full on. Yeah. So you had very little control. With the hydraulic brakes, you have fingertip precision. You can go from the teeniest of braking force to I've locked everything up with complete control in between and at no point are you using a lot of effort it is such a joy the third problem you never have rain makes all the other types of brake fade like badly fade to the point where you go to apply your brakes the first time after a couple of minutes and they don't do anything until they dry off which takes about five or ten seconds by which point you've hit something hydraulic brakes don't do that it doesn't matter how terrible the weather is. You have fingertip perfect control and you can apply massive force with minimal effort. All weather, all terrain, precision and power. That is what a brake should be. It's honestly, you will never, ever, ever, ever go back. That's lovely. Now I want a new bike. Now you want a new bike. <laughs> okay. Question six is the difficult one. Gears. Okay. I've broken this into two parts. 6A is how many, and 6B is how do you plan on changing between them? So we'll start with the okay. how many. We already know it's not 29. It's not 29 because that's we impossible. That. The laws of mathematics have ruled that one out. Okay. So the first thing to say is a lot of people assume that what you want is a bigger amount of gears. But that's not true. That's a side effect of how we used to get to what you actually want. What you actually want is a large range of ratios at your disposal, especially for a general purpose bike. So you want to have a tiny little climbing gear where every turn of the pedal moves you forward very little, but applies a very strong torque so that you can get yourself up a steep incline. And at the other end of the spectrum, you want a speed gear, where every turn of the pedal moves you forward a huge amount, but you actually have very little torque. But that's fine, because you're just putting in enough effort each time to counteract the drag from the wind and the road. So you're just putting a small amount of force in on every turn of the pedal to keep you going at speed. So you need both if you're going to be able to deal with, you know, say, San Francisco roads and getting up any sort of speed when you're on a flat road or a downhill road. Right, right. So what matters is range, not quantity. The reason we had quantity was to make it possible to get the chain from one extreme to the other. That was a side effect. That was not the point of things. But you do, within a a limit, that's true. I mean, you wouldn't want two gears. Mm. You wouldn't want 
three. Yes, I will grant you that. You'd, you'd want a lot more than that, right? Y- yes, I will definitely grant you that. You definitely want to have like a range between the two extremes. But you don't want 27 gears because you actually want 27 points of control. You want 27 gears because you want the massive range between the teeny tiny climbing gear and the massive fast gear. Okay. Now, a little bit of um, how these things work. So on your modern bikes, you have a number of cogs connected next to your pedals in the center axle and a number of cogs on the same axle as your back wheel. And the number of gears you have is the product of those two things. So if you have three cogs on the front and eight cogs on the back, you have 24 gears. Now, we wouldn't number them from 1 to 24 because that's also the reason that doesn't work. So the way you'll talk about them is you'll talk about the front three cogs as being low, medium and high. And you may only have a low and a high if you only have two. And you'll number the rear cogs where you use the climbing gear gets called 1 and the fastest gear gets called N, where N is the number of gears you have. So on a 24-speed bike, your teeniest of tiniest of climbing gears is low 1 and your fastest of going forward gear is high 8. I have never heard this terminology. That's interesting. That is is how we would generally talk about it. So you would say you have a... you would say you have a low one with high eight? No, okay, so you okay, so they're or, two different gears, right? So where the front where you are in the front three cogs, you use the word low, medium, or high. So your tiniest climbing gear is the smallest physical cog on the front and the biggest physical cog on the back, which you call low first. As you're setting off from a traffic light, the first thing you might do is move the front shifter so then you're into medium first. And then you might move the back shifter, so now you're into medium third. And then you might move the front shifter, now you're in high third. And then you keep going down I've, the back until you're at high eight. Boy, I'm lost. Okay. Um, so the front, the front cogs, we're saying in our example, we have three. We have low, medium, yes. and high. And the rear, we have one yes. through eight. But you're saying you don't call them one through eight. You don't call them one through three. No, no, right. You do call them one through eight. You don't say you have one to 24. Because if I say to you, be in 12th gear, that is meaning. What does that mean? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I got you. So, so I might, you're saying I start with, uh, well, in in general, you sort of start around the middle, right? You don't, Mm -hmm. you don't usually stop your bike on one and one. I do. Like I would my car. Uh, but that to to start up, you're going to have to pedal like crazy. About two or three turns, just like in a car. Your first gear is for what two seconds? No, but then you got to be changing. Yeah. That's not all the way I ride my bike. The way I ride my bike, and I, I get away from traffic with lights it very maybe quickly. on the fifth gear. But I'm okay. No, it's interesting. I, I'm sure. No, I'm sure. No, I'm sure we're not saying the same thing. That's why I think we're coming up with this differently. In, if you're in the lowest possible gear, mm-hmm. you have to spin your wheel like 45 times to go forward six inches. Yeah. I mean, you have to, wee, you yeah, know. I'll, I'll do that for two turns you're of the saying pedal. You... Seriously, hmm. yeah, we'll start in, in, in low first for a turn or two, and then I'll go to medium first, and then I'll go to medium third, then high third, and then high fifth, high seventh, and on from there. I always jump to. Hmm. 
a lot of lot of gear change. Yeah, but when you have good shifters, it's you know, hmm. you just change straight away. But it's a so, lot. So of... and I will beat a car off a traffic light. Like I will be faster than a car for about fifty yards. At which point, the fact that they have an engine, you know, I always get away hmm. faster than cars at traffic lights. Anyway, that's not the here nor there. Interesting. Okay. So, what you want is you want to have a big range between your smallest and your biggest. What you don't really, to be honest, having... So, the way we got to a big range was just by adding more cogs. So, my first bike was five speed. One cog at the front, five on the back. So, one times five is five. And then my second bike, by that stage, it was normal to have two at the front. I think it was a 12 speed, so two times six. And then my third bike, it was normal at that stage, 18 and 21 speed were the thing. And I I really splashed out. I went for 21 speed bike. So it was three and seven. And my last bike that was stolen was a 27, which is three and nine. Yes, three and nine gives 27. Yes, yes, it does. Must be. So at this stage... There are nine cogs on the back of your bike. What does that mean? It means you're doing a lot of gear shifting. And it means that you actually end up with a very wide frame. Because you physically have to fit nine gears back there. So you're not going to have a slender city bike with 27 gears. Because it won't be a slender city bike if you've got 27, you know, if you've got nine cogs back there. And... Going even bigger, like to a 30 speed or whatever, it just becomes ridiculous. And then you have another terrible problem. Chains are terrible at dealing with side-to-side force. It Like, if you're sympathetic to mechanical strain, you will hear a chain struggling if you force it to go on, say, a 27-speed bike, if you force it into low eighth. Or low ninth. Low ninth means one ex- the extreme left on the front and extreme right on the back. And you will hear that chain grinding and suffering while it's doing uh, that. It's called cross-chaining. And every bicycle, man- every bicycle mechanic will tell you, no, 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 pretend those gears don't exist. Never use <laughs> low eighth. Don't, these, these are just fake. They're just fake gears. They're there because you want to be able to have your, your 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 low first, which is fine. Low first is not cross chaining, but you don't want to be in low eighth or ninth, or in high first or second. And high first or second is slightly yeah, okay. annoying because they're actually useful gears. And so you you're mentally having to think about the fact that you now have gears you're not allowed to use because they're bad for your bike, <laughs> and that's really suboptimal. And that's already a problem for a 24-speed or a 27-speed bike. So obviously we'd reached the end of the road. Well, the new fashion here is to go for two at the front on opinionated mountain bikes only and 10 on the back. Oh, really? 10 on the back, Hmm. but only two on the front. So you no longer have a cross-chaining problem. And the other change they made is that instead of scaling the gears linearly on the back, they they sort of kick up really sharply so that the physically biggest cog is much bigger than the second physically biggest cog. And so instead of it being a linear angle, it's a really steep kick up, which means you still have your tiny little climbing gear, but you've now got it by having a stupendously large gear. 
uh, it does mean that your rear derailleur gets even longer because your chain has to deal with an even bigger change in length. But it means that you're doing way less gear shifting and none of your gears are off limits. I, I have 20 gears, but all 20 of them are at my disposal. Whereas I, I, so I came from a 27 speed to a 20 speed and the 20 speed is better. It is so much more pleasurable to cycle on the 20 speed. And that sounds completely counterintuitive. Yeah. And so the other thing is the difference between a 27 speed and a 24 speed is almost nothing. It's one extra cog. The difference between a 20 speed and a 21 speed is stupendous. Because with those 10 on the back, you actually have a way bigger range on the 20 speed than on the 21 speed. So almost no difference between 24 and 27. Huge difference between 20 and 21 because you've gone from the world of threes to the world of twos. Right, right. It's a different universe. And so if you're getting an opinionated mountain bike, absolutely go for the two on the front and the 10 on the back. It is such a pleasurable way to cycle that, you know, but it'll only work if you have a chunky mountain bike because there's 10 cogs back there. Like my, the two back forks on my bike are a long way apart. It does mean that I have no problem so fitting a stupidly wide tire because <laughs> everything's a long way apart of my bike. So why not um, seven in the back? Why not just 14 gear? Uh, well, because then you don't actually get the big range, right? You only have two on the front now. So you're struggling to get your tiny little climbing gear, which is why you need to have... You also, you can only physically move a chain so far. So you, in order to get a big difference, you actually do need to have multiple steps to move on. So there's a kind of an engineering problem as well. So, you know, you might imagine you could take like my first gear and my 10th gear and throw away every second gear in between to get down to five. But the problem yeah. you'd have is that your gear shifts would be very slow and or just wouldn't work. So shifting... Wait, 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 wait. No, no. Come on, there are 10-speed bikes for most of my right, life. Right, but they had a tiny range. Wouldn't work. So that 10-speed bike would have been five on the back, two on the front, and you would have had no tiny little climbing gear. So they're fine in the city. You said it just wouldn't work. It would work. Yes, but I'm saying, remember, we're trying to have a general purpose bike that will get you as many as possible uses. So if you go with that kind of a 10-speed... It wouldn't be ideal for this use case. Yeah, you would, the compromise you would okay. have Maybe. is that you don't have a small climbing gear. You do have the the high speed right. gears, but you're you're missing those little climbing gears. So if you lived in San Francisco, you're not going up those more spectacular hills. You aren't getting to work, but <laughs> yeah. now okay. in much of the world, you may not meet those kind of hills on a paved surface. Those kind of hills would only exist if you get adventurous. But there are cities in the world where those kind of hills exist on the real road. And the other place that those climbing gears can come in very handy is bridges. Because a lot of bridges can be really quite steep. Oh, yeah. Right. Particularly older ones. So, the next question then is, okay, I've decided how many gears I want. You actually do need to choose on your gear shifter, but this is another one of those places where things have gotten easier. Years ago, people had religious debates, like screaming stand-up arguments about gear shifters. You're an idiot for thinking, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> This was a thing, right? <laughs> it's so much easier now. They're all the little thumb shifters. So what you have pretty much on every bike I have seen 
in years now is you have two gear levers, one operated with your finger and one operated with your thumb. Um, oh, all of your gears are spring mounted, right? So you have a spring trying to pull the gear lever or the gear in one way, a cable holding it back and a ratchet mechanism at the gear shifter. And so in one direction, mm. it takes no force to move the gear because what you're actually doing is letting the spring win. And so the finger one that you push towards you is just the release. And if you listen very carefully, it'll always make two clicks. Click, click. Because it's actually an escapement mechanism like on a grandfather clock. Oh, interesting. So you're, are, are you saying you use one hand for all your shifting? No, so you'd have a pair... So for the front gear, you would have two levers, one to move up and one to move down. So one to move with the, with the spring and one to move against the spring. And for your rear gears, you would have a pair of shifters to move up and down. So you have four levers operating two sets of gears. So in my right hand, I have a thumb lever for moving the front cog from low to medium to high or from low to high. And I have a finger lever for going from high to medium to low. And on my other hand... Wait, say, wait, say that again? They're both going high to medium well, to no, low. Well, no, because the other one's going one, two, three, four, no, five, six. No, one's low to medium to high? No, okay. Wait, 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 wait no, no. I, on the right hand. We're only on only the on right, the right hand. hand. I have down. one lever for going from low to high and one lever for going from high to low. Oh, okay. Huh. Right, and they're very different movements. Be- so one's with your thumb and one's with yes. your finger. Okay, huh. so... We need some pictures, Bart. Yeah, we're doing our best here in audio. So what's really going on is you have a spring that's trying to pull your gear shifter to the lower gear. The spring is trying to pull it to low. And there's a cable working against the spring. And the gear shifter is just a bunch of positions where it locks. A ratchet. And so in one direction, you're applying zero force. You're just letting it loose. Letting it fall, effectively, so the spring wins. Ah, So that's the one operated with your finger because your finger can't put much force. The other one, you're working against the spring. You're lifting it up. You're pushing Ah. against the spring to the next ratchet point. And that that involves Mm -hmm. force, which is why that's your thumb. Okay. And the same is true on the other side. So your finger is moving with the spring and your thumb is moving against the spring. So what matters then, if pretty much everything now is these thumb and finger operated pairs of shifters. In the past, I used to adore the twist grip shifters. because with, Oh, I hated those. Oh, I love those because you can go from any gear to any oh. other gear in one movement. Yeah, they just felt mushy to me, though. Like, I wasn't really sure where I was. Yeah, it may depend. The ones I had made a very, very assertive click. Um I sort of, you know, you sort of feel by, you know, I want to turn four gears. I could go all the way through four. Mm-hmm. So the problem you have with this ratchety thumb finger system is that when you're going with the spring, you can never shift by more than one gear because you're basically release catch, release catch, release catch. So if you have 10 cogs on the back, you're going click, 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 click. Now, a good shifter will shift very assertively. So... I, generally speaking, would shift two at a time. So you should always, always, always ease off the pedals while you're shifting gears or you make horrible, crunching, clanging, mechanically abusive sounds. That's wrong and bad. Mm -hmm. Don't do that to your machinery. So 
I will generally ease off, go click, click, and jump two. So I'll go first, third, fifth, seventh, ninth, and then tenth, because there is no eleventh. Um, but it's two clicks. Click, 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 click. So see, you could have every other one. No, because it's the chain is going through both. The chain, the chain gets to fall in two right, steps. But I'm saying, if if you're jumping, if you're jumping from one, three, five, seven. Right, but if you if like you that, watch the chain, it actually uses. It doesn't skip over either cog. If you watch the motion, the chain right, is flowing I, down nicely. Sure, sure, but if you. I'm I'm back to why can't you have seven? It's because the chain wouldn't flow nicely. It would going down. It would probably be okay. Jump too far because it'll fall. Okay, but lifting it up, it won't catch. If you've ever had a bike with poorly adjusted gears and you're trying to go up the gears, and you can hear it almost catching, clickety 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 click 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 click. That's what you would get if you didn't have the in between gears. Whereas when the steps are nice and small, it'll catch really quickly going up the gears. And so, because down will always work, right? It'll just fall. Okay, so so you just say it allows it to be smooth, but you don't actually need those gears. In I don't between. use them. You're not, you're not yeah. using for them anything but to Moved. smooth out the ship. Yeah, exactly. It's for the chain's benefit, not mine. Got you. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. And it is in my benefit that the gears shift smoothly. I just don't care about the, you know, I, I like the fact that I can smoothly change gear, but I don't spend any time in those intermediate gears. They're like portals to the gears I want. That's just my choice. I mean, other people choose to cycle differently. I know people who go in threes, so they're using completely different cogs. <laughs> okay. Now, so going down, it's always click, 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 click. Right, no, that there is no gear shifter you can buy that will jump that I'm aware of that will jump two gears when you're going with the spring. That's not true the other way where you're going against the spring. So a cheap shifter against the spring will only let you go one at a time, and that's really annoying because the thumb ones are where you're going from a fast gear to a climbing gear, and you tend to need those in a hurry because you just slammed on the brakes and you're about to have to do a start up. Or you've just met a humpback bridge and the gradient has changed really rapidly and you'd really like to get from the fast gear to a gear that actually works very quickly. So a cheap shifter will go in ones even on the thumb. A middle of the road shifter will let you go two at a time. So you'll be able to go, you go click and you can keep pushing to a second click. And then you have to release and do it again. But a really nice shifter will let you go all the way to three. And I, so my bikes go to three. And that's wonderful because it means that I can get most of the way from my biggest gear to my smallest gear in three clicks. Okay, that maybe that explains more how you're able to go so quickly from uh, one and one. Yeah. Or one and low. Up. Well, actually, it doesn't because you're actually going the other way. But that's because you're going with the spring. And so those finger shifts are really assertive. Like those finger shifts on a good gear shifter. A good gear shifter will be really accurate and really quick. And mm-hmm. so... I can move in both directions very efficiently. Basically, a good shifter okay. will be accurate yeah. and fast and will involve minimal straining and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. The other thing a good shifter will have is a clear display of where the sudden hell you are in your gear range. <laughs> really important. And counterintuitively, what I want is zero numbers. Don't clutter up my display with stuff I can't see through. 
Give me a window and a red marker. All I really care about Mm. is, am I about the middle, on the high end, on the low end, or at an extreme? Am I all the way to the left, all the way to the right, somewhere in the middle, or closer to one end than the other? That's all I need to know. The difference between fifth and sixth, when you have ten gears back there, negligible. The difference between fifth and eighth, that I want to care about, but you can see that without the help of numbers. You don't need the numbers. Just let me see where I am. Hmm. But your taste may vary. So what you need to do is you need to buy a gear shifter that works for your eyes so that you can glance and get the information you need. So basically, they're the two things. Be able to shift two or three at once with the thumb and be able to clearly see where you are. And the other thing you will get is the more you spend, the more robust the gear shifter will be. And so it will not break. Um, the other mistake I made with my previous to current bike was I went one step down in spec and I broke two shifters. I only uh, owned the bike for a year and I broke two shifters. Uh, I now have my new bike for two and a half years and I have broke zero shifters. Okay. Okay. So that's all the hard stuff out of the way. Now we're into the important stuff. Safety okay. equipment and accessories. Lights, hmm. lights, 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 lights. I am one of those people who preach the gospel of you always have a light on your car and you always have a light on your bike. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. You have a front strobe and you have a rear strobe. I have two on the rear, one on my helmet and one under my saddle. If you're going to be... And they're on all day long. Yes. LED strobes, USB rechargeable in my case. That's the great thing, right? The new fashion these days is uh, micro USB. So that same charger that charges my headphones charges my bike lights. So I have... Oh, that's... Yeah, I have micro... Basically, in every room in the house, I have on a little spring retractable cable mount, a lightning cable and and a micro USB cable. And they charge my battery packs, they charge my bike lights, and they charge my headphones. And my phone, obviously, Hmm. with the lightning cable. So modern lights are USB rechargeable, which is fantastic. They're also LEDs, so they don't run out of charge very quickly. I believe I have 50 hours on my rear strobe. Even for someone idiot like me who cycles two hours every day, that's 25 days of cycling. Wow, that's awesome. It is awesome. Uh, They're also small and light. Um, And what I tend, my advice would be is pick a brand and stick with it so that you have the same mount on all of your bikes and you can have multiple lights that just interchange on the same mount. So I have two rear strobes, one on the helmet, one on the back of the bike and a spare in my saddlebag. And that spare will fit on either mount because they're all from the same brand. I have two mounts on the front, one one where I will keep it strobing and then I'll have a second front light that's off. Uh, But... In the wintertime, when I sometimes need a light not to be seen, but to do the seeing, I'll have two lights on the front, one in strobe mode and one in headlight mode, and I'll change, turn one on or one off, depending on whether I'm in a city or a town. And the chances of both of them running at a battery at the same time are about nil. But I have a head torch in my saddlebag, just in case. But anyway, the, the important thing is... oh. I am curious that you have them on during the day, because oh, yeah. on, a, on a car, you don't. You do here. You do in Europe. 
It's it's compulsory in the Scandinavian countries. It's recommended in most Northern European countries. In Ireland, the road safety authority mm. tell you to keep your lights on. Hmm. And modern, most modern, modern American cars have running lights that just come on when you're in the key. There are some, but I don't know that that's a, a thing that has to happen. Okay, in, in Europe, there are many countries where it's just plain old the law. I think that might be why they're sneaking into America, because it's just easier to just do the same thing everywhere. Like Californian laws tend to migrate. Uh, It's more of an issue the further north you are, because our sun is lower in our sky. Yeah. (laughs) But in the summer, you you have a bright sun. Basically, cars don't see cyclists. We're the wrong shape. Your brain is pattern matching for trucks and cars. It's not pattern matching for skinny cyclists. And even though the Lycra we wear is in the most stupid, gaudy colors you can imagine, I know for a fact drivers don't see me. And so I will not go on the road without a strobe. It has to be a flashing, bright LED front and rear. Because you you will be astonished at the looks of shock when they finally see you. They will be close enough that you can see them noticing you. It, it happens to you a few times you get this close to being squished and then you realise that there is no metal box around you and you're squishy and organic. Right. They don't see you. It's not that they're not paying attention. Someone explained it to me that your brain is basically pattern matching for what it expects to see. Mm, right, right. And that's not cyclists. So flashy, flashy, flash, flash. It's really important. So I use a brand called CatEye. I believe they're Japanese. They make they they have amazing uh, USB charge range, and they have a massive range of different lights and different mount and different things you different places you can stick their mount to. But they're all interchangeable with each other. So I have lots of different makes and you know not sorry lots of different models of CatEye light, but I can clip them all onto the. You know, they basically have a front mount and a rear mount and they're all interchangeable. So all the front lights fit in the front mount and all the rear lights fit in the rear mount. So sticking to a a single company and a single mounting system is so handy. So we have three bikes in the house and they all have cat eye mounts front and rear. Perfect. The other thing I would suggest is it is really important to have a mountable pump on your bike because just like it's not a question of will my hard drive die, but when will my hard drive die? It is not a matter of will I get a puncture, but when will I get a puncture? Very similarly, you need a mountable bag of some sort. I would say under the saddle is my only choice these days because my crossbar is at an angle that my really nice crossbar bag doesn't fit anymore. Uh, some bags nowadays go on the handlebar stem or um, sort of at that bit of the front of the bike where the crossbar meets the front of the bike instead of meets the back of the bike. But it doesn't really matter where it is. You need some sort of little bag into which you can have a basic toolkit. You you generally can buy these in a bike shop. It's like a little, imagine a Swiss Army knife, but instead of being things you don't know what they're for, they're all the sizes of Allen key that occur on modern bicycles. And a star screwdriver, a square screw, you know, a flat screwdriver. And a good one will have a chain link breaker, which means you can put your chain back together if it snaps. That's really convenient. And in there should be a spare tube, a set of tire levers, and some patches and glue. And, as I discovered the hard way, always have basic first aid in there. 
Oh. I managed to... I didn't fall off, but I managed to... I, 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 I cycle with something called bear trap pedals because I don't like being clipped hmm. in because I find that deeply disturbing. And it also means I have to have fancy footwear. So instead, I go for these really massive platform pedals that are really jaggedy, so they really grip my shoes. Well, I was a new bike, and I wasn't used to it yet, and I stepped off it, and the pedal spun right the way around and into my shin. Ah. And I put four big holes in my shin that pumped blood, and I had nothing to clean the oil out of the wound, and I was ten miles from home. I now have alcohol wipes and plasters in my saddlebag. Plasters? There's another word. Uh, Band-aids. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Bandages. Like, I mean, really, the alcoholic wipes is way more important than the Band-Aids because if you're on a bike, either a bit of the bike has gone into you, which means it's greasy, or a bit of planet Earth has gone mm. into you, in which case it's dirty. But either way, right. you want to clean it. Yeah. So yeah. the alcoholic wipes, you know, the pre-sealed, individually wrapped alcoholic wipes, just two or three of them in your saddlebag, they take up no room. Uh, the puncture repair kit, they exist nowadays so that you don't need glue. So you literally, they have a piece of sandpaper and then the patch. And so you rub the sandpaper, you peel the back off the patch and you stick it on the tire. You give it five minutes and you pump. I think that's exactly what we had when I was a little kid. Are you? Sh- it was maybe not sandpaper, but it was a. It would. It would rough. It was a thing to rough up. the Yeah, tire. but the way it would work when you were a kid was you had the thing to rough up the tire. Then you would put on the glue, and then you had to do the most counterintuitive thing to a child: wait for the glue to completely dry before you put the patch on. Okay, maybe. Yeah, they probably have better glue now. Right. Well, now, so now you can buy patches. I'm saying you can now buy patches without any glue. The glue is basically on the patch, and so you don't right. have that the step. Sticker. Which, if it's the middle of the night and it's dark and it's cold and you're cranky, that's worth a lot. Right, right. Uh, But also carry a spare tube because if it's cold and it's the middle of the night and you're cranky, just throw a new tube in. You can fix the puncture when you get home and then put that as your spare tube for next time. You don't have to throw it away and be wasteful, but you also don't necessarily have to go spending your time fixing punctures. But the reason you have the puncture repair kit is because sometimes if you cycle over a nail, you get both tires. I speak from bitter experience. <laughs> it's like pop, pop, one spare tube, poop. That's it. I had no puncture repair kit. So that was a walk. Now right. I have a puncture oh. repair kit. So most of what's on my bike is from bitter experience. Um, I believe it is not possible to cycle safely without a rear view mirror. I did not used to believe this until I learned to drive a car and I built up that muscle memory. And now the thoughts of having to crane my neck to see what's happening back there is so alien to me, I can't do it anymore. Interesting. So you have a couple of choices here. Handlebar mounted, helmet mounted or arm mounted. Um... The only handlebar mounted ones I have found to actually work are the ones that go into the end of the handlebar, not something you strap to the bull bars or something like that. Because they just rotate. They just, yeah, they just don't stay put. So the ones I buy, there's a link in the show notes, which I'm assuming you're going to magically turn into an, an Oscilla Castaways 
referral link. Not quite sure. Yes, I have. The, uh, you can probably see a price on them. I think like four pounds sterling or something. Like they're they're excruciatingly cheap, but they mount into the handlebar mount, so they stay put, and they they're spring mounted, so you can clip them in, and then clip them out into exactly the position you mounted them in. So you basically clip the mirror in, park the bike, take the bike out, clip the mirror out, and off you go. They are flat. Oh, they are really cheap. They're like twelve bucks. Twelve bucks. Yeah. Ten bucks. Yeah. They're, they're, they're dirt cheap. And they're they're flat. They're not convex or concave. Because a lot of the mirrors, because they're so hard to mount, they make up for that fact by being convex. So they have a really big field of view, which means that you can't judge distances and everything looks tiny. Which is the exact opposite of the warning on American wing mirrors. Or is it exact? No, hang on. Objects may appear closer. To, no. Yes, yeah, the exact opposite, because objects may appear closer, is what it says in your mirrors, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. whereas the, 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 the bad handlebar mirrors tend to be convex, which means everything seems far away. Oh, no problem. He's miles away. Beep. Don't want that. Um, I've never tried a helmet mount. I can see the logic, because the one thing that doesn't move relative to your eyes is your helmet so i can see the logic of mounting a mirror on your right. helmet but i've never done it a lot of people like those yeah uh, and then what i recently bought thanks to, lis- to listening to the nasilla cast so those wing light people they make another product which is a a mirror you strap onto your arm and i bought one. Oh, this is the company this is a com- one of the companies joe duganzik talked yeah, about yeah so cycl or i guess you call it cycle i don't know cy yeah. Yeah. So they have basically a mirror with a really comfortable arm strap that you can either put just above your wrist, just below your elbow, or just above your elbow. And while hmm. your arm is not as stationary as your handlebar or your helmet, it's actually it still works pretty well, even though it is convex and it's not. It's like it's not as good as a handlebar mount, but it works well enough that I bought it and I'm happy with it because when I borrow someone else's bike, most Irish people don't believe in mirrors on bicycles. I, I do. So I bring my own and strap it to myself. Oh, that's yeah. neat. And they're really portable. Like, it clips up really small, so it's it's really nice. I'm really happy with that, actually. I only bought that a few weeks ago, and I really like it. Um, I would also say that if you ever cycle on a place that's shared between pedestrians and cyclists, you need a bell. It should be loud, clear, but not angry-sounding. Seriously, I've gotten compliments on how friendly my bell sounds. Uh, and I've just realized that I looked up a link and I wrote in the show notes, I love these colon and I didn't hit paste. So we'll have to go do that again. Okay, we'll get it I'll from get you. it from you. But basically, they're, uh, like they're, they're spring mounted instead of being the old ring ring ones. It's just a little spring mounted thing that twangs a little bell. But you get one with a nice tone that's basically, hello, I'm here, as opposed to, oh, you! It's... <laughs> It, you know, <laughs> they're super handy down on the beach. Those are that's a real nice thing to just go Bing. like on your left. Exactly. Yeah, and it's come here. So you, you ring with plenty of time. Over. You're not trying to say you're not shouting. Get out of the way. You're saying I'm here. By the way, I'm here. By the way, and yeah. it, getting the right bell makes such a difference. Um, now this last point, I don't believe I should have to say this, but maybe I do. Never, ever, 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 ever get on a bicycle without a bloody helmet, ever. Never. 
But Bart, when I was just cycling, just went to the beach, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was it was just a real easy bike ride. It wasn't that big of a deal until I ducked over under some bougainvillea, flipped over the handlebars and ended up in the hospital. Yeah. Because I didn't have a helmet on. Yeah, it doesn't matter how far you're going. The road is just as hard. <laughs> yeah. And as I like to tell people when they say, you know, they don't need to wear a seatbelt because they're just going to the store. I said, turns out physics works going at slow speeds and high speeds. Yep. Uh, physics works on bikes yeah. as well as cars. Yeah. So leaving aside the obvious that you should wear a helmet, there's a little more to it than that. It is absolutely vital that you buy a helmet that fits your head. Like, modern helmets are very adjustable, so there's probably only like a small, medium, and a large. So you you probably should notice it's the wrong size because either it'll be so stupidly big that it's obviously too big or so stupidly small you're wearing it on top of your head instead of on your head. <laughs> but <clears throat> the fact that they're so adjustable brings a new problem. You have to adjust them. And a poorly adjusted helmet is actually worse than useless because not only will it fail to save your head, it may break your neck. Because it will move hmm. backwards and a uh. pivot around your head. So your head smacks into the ground and you break your skull, and your helmet pivots around your head and breaks your neck. Well, that's nice. So particularly if you're new to this, buy a helmet in an actual bike shop with actual experts and don't leave there till they have adjusted it to your head. Now, once you understand how it adjusts, you can do it yourself from then on. But the first time, get help. It gets so important. The other thing almost no one realizes is that helmets have a use-by date because the, pl the, the, the plastic material degrades over time. Do not rely on an out-of-date helmet. Instead of it absorbing the energy, it will have already degraded so that all the energy goes through the helmet and into your head. That's exactly what it's oh, wow. not supposed to do. I absolutely did not know that. Yeah, most people don't. And it's on far too small a writing, probably on a sticker. So basically, if your helmet's five years old, throw it in the bin and get a new helmet. Wow, mine's definitely over five years old. The other thing, and this is really annoying because the helmet's on your head all the time and you really get to like them because they're like a part of you. And then you have to throw them out and I always feel bad. But it's supposed to save your life, so make sure it actually can save your life. And then the other thing is the way a helmet works is that it breaks by protecting you. So if you are in an accident. And even if you see no physical damage on the outside of the helmet, the inner structure of that helmet has been deformed. Bonds have been broken. Mm. The helmet has, although you can't see it, absorbed the energy by damaging itself. You must replace your helmet after it takes a knock, even if it doesn't look like it's badly damaged. It has done its thing and has saved your head. It can't do it twice. I remember when uh, when we got rear-ended in Steve's car and Forbes was in the in the uh, in the car. We got hit a pretty good jolt. You know, did a bunch of damage to the car, but we were all fine. Mm. And we had to throw Forbes's car seat away. Yeah, same thing. And it was it was really hard. And and we felt like, man, we should donate this to somebody who can't afford. Wait, it. Well, no. no, you can't do that either. Yeah, but it was just like, but there's we knew there was nothing wrong with it, but we did it anyway. Yeah, well. the it's got to be done because like, like a crumple zone or, you know, the helmet absorbs the energy by damaging itself. You damage the helmet to save your skull. 
if it's taken a knock and you feel fine, the helmet's done its job. But it's done its job. It can't do it twice. So that's me being, okay, I can stop. I can get off my soapbox now. I've preached at you about safety. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I have is a little bit of ergonomic advice. The first time you buy a bike, you will not know what size of frame to buy. So yes, you might know that you want an opinionated mountain bike and that you want 27-inch wheels. But when you go to hit the buy button, it's going to ask you, do you want a small, a medium, or a large? Or depending on the brand, it may actually say, do you want 14 inches, 15 inches, 16 inches, 17 inches. If you're curious, it's the distance between the crossbar and the pedal crank. So you know the way you measure horses, I think it's from their foot to their shoulder. You measure bicycles from the center axle <laughs> up to the crossbar. Oh, I always wondered where the, what, that, uh, what that measurement was. Yeah, ours are, what I've always seen was in inches. Yeah. Again, mine are in inches. So my city bike is a 19 inch and my opinionated mountain bike is a 15 inch. And so that's so. There's four inches of difference in where that crossbar is between those two bikes. Um, you won't know what size you are. So the first time you buy a bike, go into an actual bike shop and buy it off a human being who knows what they're talking about. Um, best case scenario, if you buy the wrong size, it will be uncomfortable. Worst case scenario, you actually won't have proper control of the darn thing, in which case it will be unsafe. Uh, the other thing is, the first time you buy a bike you're not going to know how to adjust the saddle because it doesn't just go up and down. It also tilts forwards and backwards and it's on rails, so it slides forwards and backwards too. So you have three axes of freedom. That's a lot of ways to screw it up. There's only one right answer. Best case scenario, the ergonomics are off and you are uncomfortable and you can't cycle as quickly as you should be able to. Worst case scenario, the ergonomics are off so much you give yourself some sort of stress injury. I, I remember we had a friend named Dan who was um, uh, got a bike too big for him, and every single pedal you saw him go all the way twisting uh-huh. his hips all the way to the right, and then twisting them all the way to. But he was one of these guys where I'm sure it was because he didn't want to admit that he was short. Oh God! But it was just don't do that. Yeah, it was don't do that. Yeah. It was hard to watch. I can imagine. But even if you bought the right size bike, you still have to adjust it. So like I say, up and down, yeah. tilt and slide on the rails. And so again, the first time, get someone who knows what they're doing to help you. And once you understand, then once you know the difference in field between right and wrong, you can do it yourself from that point forward. But the first time, get some help. The next thing, I do not understand why every bike shop in Ireland seems to get this wrong. Maybe Americans are better at this. So on your bike, the brake lever is at an angle to the handlebars. Is it parallel to the road or at a different angle? Hmm. Because what you want some angle, right. is that your wrist is straight while you rest your fingers on the brake lever. Because you should be able to comfortably rest your fingers there if you're in traffic because you might need those any second. For me, my brake lever is at 45 degrees to the horizontal. When it came out of the bike shop, it was parallel to the ground. I was like, ah, it's like RSI uh, City. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're on little Allen screws, loosen them, sit on your saddle, put your hands out flat so your wrists are straight, push the brake levers, then tighten the Allen key. Done. You will be so thankful. Your hmm. gear shifters are also on, this, on an adjustable similar thing. 
angle them with the brake levers so that you can see the screen and so that when your fingers are resting on the brake levers, your thumb are at the right angle to move and your fingers are at the right angle to move. So basically, take everything on your handlebar, loosen it, put your wrists flat and then have everything so it's in the right place and then tighten it all up. It will make such a difference and you'll save yourself an injury. I would also highly recommend buying a pair of bar ends so that you can have your wrists... Wait, wait, what's a bar end? So at the edge of the handlebar, you can buy a straight thing that goes perpendicular to the handlebar. Oh, I've seen those, but I never knew what they were for. So you would adjust them in such a way that you can have your hands so that your wrists are straight. So instead of... So your handlebar means that your wrists are... Like thumbs twisted. up. Exactly. Thumbs up. Exactly. Thumbs up and wrists completely okay. straight. So what you'll probably find is about a 45 degree oh. angle is where those bars need to go. And then you can cycle with your hands and everything completely straight. And that is... I saw your picture and I was like, what the heck is that? There you go. And if you're cycling any sort of distance, the ability to move from having hands on handlebars to hands on bull bars to hands on handlebars to hands on bull bars is such a treat. And the other thing is there's a third position that's even less obvious is hands cupped over the top of them. Oh, right, is, right. But it gives you a chance to relax your wrist. It wrists. does because I, I have three positions. And the other thing is I will often find myself doing one thing with one hand and one thing with the other hand which means I have one hand where my hand is on the brakes and the other hand is in one of the other two comfortable positions and then I'll swap. And so at all points in time, oh, I have brake control okay. and I'm getting to move my wrists around a bit so I don't end up with horrible strains. And they're dirt cheap. Like I think the ones I like are from a company called BBB and I think they're like £15 or something. And again, Amazon link in the show notes. Like they cost piddly nothing. It's important you get the angle right so that you can have your wrists straight. So if they're angled too far up, it's really uncomfortable. If they're angled too far down, it's really uncomfortable. So just leave them loose on the handlebars, sit comfortably, and then lock them into place. So that's basically my advice for everything on the handlebar. Loosen it, put it right, and then lock it. Right, right. And then I'm going to end this rather long show with just one final tip. Save yourself some money. Do yourself a favor don't confine yourself to what I call the big two. There are two mountain bike brands that are head and shoulders more popular than all the others, and they're both American, and they're Giant and Trek. I've owned both. Um, They're lovely bikes. But the thing is, there are lesser-known brands that are exactly the same quality, but for the same price, you're going to be one spec level higher. So that means that your gear shifters are going to be more robust, more quick and more accurate. Your brakes are going to be better. Everything is just going to be that one bit higher quality. So basically you're going to you basically get one price point for free. So in my case, the spec on an equivalently priced Giant or Trek for my Big 7500 will be the same spec as on the stolen Big 6 400 I used to have. Everything is just one step cheaper. So those shifters I broke two in a year, I would pay as much for those on a Trek or a Giant as I pay for the better shifters I have never broken on my Merida. So Hmm. basically those little guys punching up will give you better value for money. Just take a moment to make sure that they're bigger, that they're little guys punching up and not idiots. Uh, 
But little guys punching up, I think you're saying companies that are competing with Trek and yes. Giant? So in other words, they're as competent, okay. as capable, but because they're not those well-known brands sponsoring the big cycling teams, they need to offer you more for the same money. So Merida are Germans. So they're like a Volkswagen. They're really well-engineered bikes, but they're not even a quarter as famous as Trek or Giant. So I basically get a better bike for the same price. I had to do a little bit of homework, though. So there's three ways you can do your homework. Go to a shop with a human being who you trust, and they'll just tell you, these brands good, these brands bad. Failing that, go to a publication you trust and read the reviews. Or perhaps, arguably best of all, if you have a friend who you trust, it's probably the best thing of all. Nothing beats a first-person recommendation. But basically, don't feel that you have to stick to Trek or Giant because you'll find there's way better value for money in the lesser-known but equally high-quality brands. And Merida are just... I'm so happy with Merida. My last two bikes have been Merida's, and my next bike will be a Merida. That's that's the only thing I know for sure about replacing my my current possibly unfixable road bike. <laughs> it will be a Merida. So what... I got freaking out here when I first started on Trek. Every bike I was looking at was like $6,000. Oh, no, they have a full range. So now I've found some in the $600 kind of ranges looking a little more reasonable. Yeah. And and I... It's hard to tell the terminology, though. Like, I just... I, hybrid bikes is what I found. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, so you're... So I think Trek... Is a giant or Trek like the hardtail phraseology? But, yeah. But, but... uh but the the first category I could pick that made sense was hybrid. Yeah, prob- probably I could say uh, the the the, tre- the, the, the the there is a trek in this house at the moment. It's my brother's old bike that's now the uh, wings bike, but it's ancient. It was just called a mountain bike back then. Yeah, and I used to cycle giants for years. Okay. I had a lovely giant mountain bikes, but honestly, you're just overpaying for the brand. Okay. It's like the difference in a Skoda and a Volkswagen. They're made in the same factory. Okay, it's not exactly the same. A Skoda and a Volkswagen are actually owned by the same company. Um, but you would buy a Skoda for the same quality as a Volkswagen for much less money. Well, this is cool. Yeah. They, uh, they- I've enjoyed this. I, I'm surprised at how much I didn't know about current bikes. That was uh, that was certainly a huge... Yeah, these things are getting really techie. Like, you... you there's yeah. fun technology hiding away in something as simple as a bicycle, even though big picture wise that diamond frame has not changed since. Frankly, the Wright brothers would recognise the design, right? A chain going between a centre axle and a rear axle, and then a front axle on a pivot off the top of a diamond frame, like that has not changed in over a hundred years. And yet, <laughs> we met so much cool nerdy tech in those six questions, seven questions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, that was really fun, Mike. <laughs> Bart. <laughs> I get bikes on my name on my on my mind here. Well, I say I had I had great fun preparing this one, and it was it was I, for various reasons. I had it, it's this time of year in work. Given I work in education, I just didn't have the mental energy to get ready for the next programming by stealth. So this was fun to do, and I'm glad you enjoyed recording it. So yay. 
Yeah. So Bart said uh, he was wasn't going to be able to do program by by stealth, and he said, "But I've been kind of noodling this idea about bike technology." And and then I thought about this and this and this and this. <laughs> okay, so dress blown up. Let's. I think we'll do that. So, yeah. So thank you for trusting me on that, and I'm glad you had fun. I'm not really sure how to end yeah. it because how do I say happy computing when we just there hasn't been a computer in sight? That's Can't do that. actually there's and, one thing you used to buy. You used to buy cycling computers. Now you have a watch or a phone. <laughs> how about wear your helmet? Yeah, stay stay helmeted. No, that doesn't work. Stay stay so stay. Be safe. safe be seen. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSillaCastaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSillaCastaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.